Welcome from the brand new castle scream scene. Th- this is the scream scene podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. Uh, we are coming to you uh, not live from the new castle scream scene. Yeah, we're probably going to sound a little bit different than like last week's episode and we're probably going to sound a little bit different from like next week's episode because where we're doing this and how we're doing this is absolutely not how we're going to be doing this no we are currently sitting on the floor with a coffee table between us yeah if this is like how it's gonna be no uh from now on i quit the podcast no um who's gonna tell me what to watch (laughs) we've been in the new house for a little over a week now And there's just, you know, a lot that's still not unpacked. We have kind of the bare minimum we need to do the show, but we haven't quite figured out what the recording arrangement is going to be. So this is the the compromise that we uh, arrived at. Um, And I'm realizing that like at 32 years old uh, and also being someone who doesn't, you know, do stretches or exercise regularly that uh, sitting cross-legged on the floor sucks, basically. <laughs> How are you doing, Sarah? Uh, good. We just got our fourth COVID shot. Yes. The booster booster. That's true. Super excited for further continued resiliency against COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, yay, healthcare. F- hooray for healthcare. Yes. So yeah, I'm feeling very good. And we also have a new patron to thank. Right. Yes. David Healy has joined the patrons of the night, which I'm super grateful for, given that we did his suggestion of watching Faust and disagreed with him that it was a horror movie and didn't put it on the list. So when I saw that he had become a patron, I was like, oh, cool. No hard feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine there would be hard feelings. We're all pals here. Fair. Um, And David is now a patron pal. Uh, So thank you so much, David. Thank you. Uh, so what are we watching this week, Ben? This week, Sarah, we are back in Japan with another Japanese horror film from director Nobuo Nakagawa. This time, it is Ona Kyukatsuki, or Lady Vampire. Okay. Or Woman Vampire, or Female Vampire. The The, the typical English translation of the title is Lady Vampire, but like the actual word used is just like... Woman? Woman. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I know Nakagawa's track record Mm. with horror movies and that they are good and they are horror. Um, But I have to admit that uh, a title like Lady Vampire, if this was like in the 1930s, would have me worried we'd be hitting an Alrauna situation of like, oh no, it's a woman with agency. Yeah, you you would think it was a vamp. Yes. Um, But no, this is not a vamp situation. Uh, However, the title is sort of misleading. Okay. Um, But that might be a thing for us to discuss later. Okay. So this is the fourth film we've seen from director Nobuo Nakagawa uh, during a period where he was making 
uh, a name for himself as the top director of horror B-movies at his studio, Shintoho. So the films of his that we have watched for the show so far, we covered Vampire Moth in episode 186B and ultimately decided it was more thriller than horror. Then we covered Ghost Story of Kasane Swamp mm-hmm. in episode 241B, and we ranked it at 71, which means it ranks higher than any versions of Ghost Story of Kaiden so far. So far. And then in episode 239, we watched Black Cat Mansion, which we ranked at number 54. I quite liked Black Cat Mansion. Yes, yes. Uh, that was, we knew that was going to happen. <laughs> Significantly, however, Ona Kyuketsuki was produced after the release of Hammer's Dracula in Japan, which was a massive smash hit in that country, um, famously being shown uncut in Japan, where it was otherwise censored at home and abroad. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, so the Japanese version of Hammer's Dracula has the full Face violent. melty. Yeah, and, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, it was a huge hit. Uh, the Japanese loved Christopher Lee as a vampire. I mean, so did I. So Ona Kyuketsuki is Japan's first vampire movie, uh, putting it in a similar cohort with films like El Vampiro and E Vampiri um, <laughs> in terms of like these international vampire movies that were cropping up in response to the new resurgence of gothic horror. The film's story is based on a novel by Soto Tachibana, who had also written the novel that Black Cat Mansion was yeah. based on. Yeah, that's why his name is familiar. <laughs> yeah, Where we, There's like no research about him at all. Yeah. Like there's no information anywhere. Yeah, we talked briefly about Tachibana in that episode. Uh, he was an author of popular fiction in the 1930s and 50s in Japan. Um, his vampire novel, though, was highly influenced by the earlier novel from 1938, Death's Head Stranger, which was the first Japanese vampire novel written by Seishi Yokomizu. And Yokomizu wrote the Kosuke Kindaichi novels, one of which was adapted into Nakagawa's Vampire Moth. Mm. So kind of, you know, a little bit of an Ouroboros here. Yeah. Um, both Yokomizo's novel, Death's Head Stranger, and Tachibana's novel that this film was based on, uh, use for the basis of their vampire a true Japanese historical figure named Amakusa Shiro. Yeah, um, when you first mentioned that to me and then had me research this figure... I was like, so is it kind of like a, a Count Dracula in Transylvania situation where he was like a real historical figure? And no, not not really. I mean, sort of. You could actually make the case, actually, but not well, really. It Amakusa was... Shiro is a real historical figure, but it's not it's not like a thing where like there was like chapbooks going around being like, he's a vampire. No, no, not not at all. Um, so Amakusa Shiro, uh, he was born in 1621. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> um, and he was born to a Catholic family um, as a son to a samurai retainer. And now someone who might not be as familiar with Japanese history might go like Catholicism in Japan <laughs> in the 1600s. And yeah, that's right. Um, before 
the 1600s, um, Japan openly traded with the international community, particularly the Dutch, Portuguese, and Spanish merchants. And that also meant that missionaries and Jesuits headed to Japan to spread the good word in the 1540s. And then Toyotomi Hideyoshi unified Japan through many wars in roughly around the 1580s. Uh, and as part of doing that, he wanted to consolidate power around his shogunate. He saw Christianity as a potential threat to that power because, like, that's something people can organize around that doesn't revolve around him. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, he was like, I'll let it lie. You know, they're not doing anything. It'll be fine. After he died and then a brief scuffle about who would succeed him happened, um, he was ultimately succeeded by Tokugawa Yesu in 1600 and this is when he established the tokugawa shogunate to lead japan for the next 200 years yes um as part of leading japan he was very isolationist Mm -hmm. international trade became you know at first it started to become controlled only by these avenues controlled by the shogunate and then eventually you know to fully centralize power those channels were being cut off During this time, Christianity was also banned as well. The way that, uh, like ambitious people wanted to rise up and show their worth to the shogunate is, um, by having a lot of money. Once you had a certain amount of money in your area, you could join the shogunate, basically join the parliament or, you know, ruling thing. I'm using the wrong terms, but that's fine. So taxes went up significantly for the peasant community. Now, I, you might be going like, what the fuck does this have to do with Amikusa Shiro? Well, he lived in the area known as the Shimabara Peninsula and Amakusa Islands, and the peasants of those areas began to revolt against these rising taxes. A lot of them, like a significant portion of these peasants, were also Christians, and so they just kind of had had enough. Yeah, it's sort of interesting, like the idea that there were still Christians in Japan, but they'd kind of been like abandoned, right? Because like you weren't getting any new European priests or anything in. And so you just kind of were like cut off, like, like excommunicated, but not by the church, by your government, you know? (laughs) Amakusa Shiro at around 15 years old. Uh, became the leader of this rebellion. Yeah, man. Uh, Teen boys leading rebellions is not just a thing that happens in anime. This rebellion grew with other neighboring regions joining in with uh, both peasants and ronin. And officially, the rebellion began in fall of 1637 with the assassination of a tax collector. So the rebels lay siege to the nearby lord's castles. There were two different clans, particularly. But, uh, you know, they were doing, they were holding their own. But then reinforcements came in and pushed them out by the shogunate armies. So the rebellion was pushed back and had basically their last stand at a place called Hera Castle, which by this time wasn't like in the best shape, but it was still like livable. It wasn't like ruined status yet. Um, And they held their own for five months at this castle, through the winter, through the spring. Um, In total, there were estimated numbers, but estimated to be around 27,000 rebels facing off against 
thousand soldiers. Yeah. Damn. With this 15 year old leading them all. Mm -hmm. Um, they had uh, a flag, um, a couple of different versions, but like the one that they tended to fly was uh, one that very heavily featured the cross. So Catholicism, Christianity really tied to this rebellion. In April 1638, there was a final push by the Shogunate army because Amakusa was betrayed by someone on the inside. Ooh. And the... Uh, got, got big Lelouch feels from this guy. <laughs> um... Castle was taken with rebels. Uh, for the most part, um, they were all executed. Um, rebels and sympathizers, numbering around 37,000, were beheaded. Um, so, like, the farmers in this area, like, some areas just didn't have any more population. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. wild to think yeah, that's about. Yeah, that's a large pile of skulls. Yeah, and they kind of threw all those dead bodies into Castle burned and raised the castle to the ground. So wow. it was then a ruin. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was a little, a little much, but they <laughs> wanted to like quell this rebellion, both in terms of like peasant revolt, but also no more Christianity in Japan. Yeah. It was the last battle before the period of what I'll say is uh, in quotation marks, peace. Yeah. Because there weren't any, it, it's not peace in the sense of like, oh, peace and love and everyone's happy. No, no, it's, it, it's a, it's a, you know, Pax Romana sort of situation where it's like, listen, there is one authority here and no one is fighting it, fighting it. So, so it's, it's peaceful. Peace. Yeah, exactly. And that period of peace lasted over the next 200 years. Now, with this rebellion, like I said, um, they rallied around the cross as a symbol. The, the rebellion is taken as like, yeah, Cath Catholicism catholicism's last stand in japan mm -hmm. part of why that rebellion is seen that way as well is because post-rebellion uh the shogunate was like okay we're done with christianity mm -hmm. uh and severely cracked down on people practicing christianity um there were protestant missionaries in japan too and so whether it was catholicism or protestantism it was like no go regardless portuguese traders who had brought in catholicism specifically were like pushed out and uh the national seclusion or isolationist policies really came down hard after this rebellion now, in popular culture, Amakusa is typically kind of constructed as like a tragic villain hmm. in a similar way that I think a lot of people like to think about vampires. Like I'm thinking of like Gary Oldman's depiction of Dracula in um, Francis Ford, Ford Coppola's Dracula. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. Um. Uh, there's a common refrain of... Um, I'll say apocrypha around Amakusa, uh, basically rejecting God at the end of his life, right? Ooh. When he's about to be beheaded. That's That's got a, a strong um, Dracula vibe to it. Exactly. And because of that rejection of God, he comes back as a demon and specifically targets the Tokugawa shogunate. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, you know, being Westerners uh from north america used to having the world like portrayed to us through this very like you know european centric lens to be like oh yeah the 15 year old teen christian who led like an underdog rebellion of farmers and peasants against like the isolationist um 
like cultural imperialist empire and like held out in like a castle for five months against superior forces. Yeah, that dude's a villain. He's a bad guy. Yeah. Because like everything cultural in the West is screaming at you like that dude's the hero of a TV show. Like that dude, like that's Luke Skywalker. Like, what are you talking (laughs) about? That's the villain. But it's like, yeah, man, he's a Christian. He's a fucking like. And what's interesting about it, too, is the way that ties into, for one thing, if we're talking about the introduction of vampires to Japan through like Hammer, right? Like we're not talking about like homegrown variations of like undead bloodsuckers like the hopping vampires in china or whatever we're talking about like hey we're all watching peter cushing stick two candles together to make a cross in order to make christopher lee go ah right exactly we're talking about that specific kind of vampire coming to japan becoming really popular and trying to like create your own homegrown versions of that you can see why it has to be attached to christianity like why why yeah. the Japanese would be like, yeah, this is a Christian thing. Like they wouldn't think of it as like a secular thing the way that vampires have sort of like become, right? Yeah, I will say that like a lot of horror things, like you really see it in exorcism yeah. type of things, but like Catholicism in particular gets tied to a lot of supernatural elements. Yeah, the only time you really get a lot of Protestant uh, stuff in horror is if we're talking about like Salem, like witch yeah scare stuff. and even then um that's like puritans right yeah, that's right and so it doesn't quite clock as like your average protestant sure right? so you know but what i'm getting at with this like mm. association between vampires and christianity like it's a one that you can understand the japanese having because it's like that's the context within which this monster makes sense mm-hmm. whereas yeah i feel like nowadays there's a lot of vampire stuff that like isn't tied to christian anything that's because hollywood got a little spooked about being explicitly religious sure sure um but also i think just as vampires got more popular you had like less religious people making vampire content right fair enough yeah like when does like god Lost Boys. Yeah, yeah when does god ever come up in like buffy the vampire slayer right so you know the other thing though that's interesting is that like if we cast our minds back to like what the vampire represented to Bram Stoker mm. and like Dracula, which was like the thing that really popularized vampires, right? Like not, invasion, right? Like not thinking about what vampires represented to like the folk people of Eastern Europe who came up with the myth, but like to Bram Stoker and what Dracula meant. It's about like foreign cultures invading your land. And like, that's basically the Amakusa Shiro story where it's like, he's a bad guy because he was bringing in or defending he didn't really bring them in, but like defending these Western ideals that were like corrupting the pure Japanese culture. Right. So it like ties in with like what vampires kind of are. Yeah. You know, I think that's why he's also seen as like that tragic villain, right? Mm. Like villain. Cause yes, he's defending these things, but tragic because he's a 15 year old kid who has such conviction. Right. Yeah. Emakusa Shiro like did not have any problems getting in the Ava. You know what I mean? <laughs> So, yeah, Yokomizo's novel and Tachibana's novel both use Amakusa Shiro as, like, the basis for their vampire lore, mm. while also using that Christian connection as a way to bring in, like, a lot of Western imagery. That makes sense. Now, Tachibana himself actually 
passed away in 1959. Um, so I, th- think the novel this is based on is like one of his last novels and i think he was dead before this movie came out so the film's screenwriters who adapted the novel um you know didn't have him around to answer questions uh they also had only written like a handful of movies for shintoho each uh before working on the adaptation so these are like young inexperienced writers who are doing this adaptation although one of them would go on to pen a version of Yatsuya Kaiden in 1969. So, you know, he's got... One of these writers has some horror in his future. Okay. As for the cast of this film, uh, we have a lot of people who, like, will go on to do things, as opposed to were already known at this time. Yeah, that tracks. Uh, So we have 28-year-old actor Shigeru Amachi, who plays our villainous vampire, Um, And what's really fun about that is he plays the vampire in this movie. And then in a few months, uh, in like summer of 1959, uh, he's going to reunite with Nobuo Nakagawa to play Yemen in Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden. Oh, uh, Which is the most acclaimed movie version of Yatsuya Kaiden, uh, Nakagawa's Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden. Cool. Yeah. The film's heroic lead, uh, the character's name is Tamiyo. Uh, he's played by actor Takashi Wada, um, who we have actually seen before in Ghost of Kasane Swamp and Black Cat Mansion. The role of the sort of romantic female lead, um, the character's name is Itsuko, uh, is played by 26-year-old actress Junko Ikeuchi, uh, who would go on to play Ume in Nakagawa's Yatsuya Kaiden. Okay. And a Sode in the 1965 adaptation illusion of blood interesting her youthful mother miwako is played by yoko mihara also age 26 um, who is best known for her roles in three outlaw samurai sword of the beast and a number of films in um uh this very popular subgenre of japanese films in the 60s and 70s known as pink films okay Okay, you don't know what pink films are. No, um, I, I would guess that it would have something to do with like the 60s and 70s kind of leaning into like weird imagery. I don't know. I'm doing the like the, bat thingy. Yeah, you're, you're doing the Batusi, uh, the Batusi uh, here at me. No, um, so pink films uh, are softcore erotica movies. Oh, no. Um, Different kind of pink. I yes, see. Yeah, I see. that kind of pink. Um, <laughs> So these were movies that had like strong erotic elements, um, very similar to the boom in softcore films in America in the 60s and 70s as well. You understand the difference like between softcore and hardcore, right? Um, can I say I know it when I see it? <laughs> to make the joke of, yeah. Um, how about you explain for our audience though? So a softcore film doesn't have like on-screen sex acts. Okay. Uh, in the sense of like, if there's sex in a softcore film, it's simulated sex the same way that it is like in a mainstream movie. Oh, so no actual penetration. Yeah, yeah, or or other like explicit sex acts, right? Okay. Um, softcore films are like the kind of thing that you would see on like Showcase or Bravo, like really late at night. That's softcore. Did Americans have those channels? Um, they have. Um, uh, an American would probably know Cinemax uh, or Skinemax, as it was sometimes known. That kind of stuff. 
Okay. That softcore stuff. So these were movies that had way, way more erotic content than like any kind of mainstream film up to that time, mm -hmm. but weren't quite pornography yet. Like these movies still have plot lines and things and characters, but this is like women in prison movies and, and like <laughs> things like that. So the delivery guy still gets paid. So yeah, um, <laughs> that's, that a that's, bad joke? that's what, that... <laughs> so that's what pink films are. Okay. Um, so there's sort of this like buffer genre, I guess, between like mainstream films and pornography. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and they were very popular um, until about the rise of like home video, which then popularized more hardcore content. In terms of the film's crew, uh, cinematographer Yoshimi Hirano uh, had previously worked with Nakagawa on Ghost of Kasane Swamp, but otherwise Nakagawa is mostly working with just like the crew that Shintoho assigned to him today. Okay. Yeah. So, Ona Kyuketsuki was released by Shintoho on March 7th, 1959. It has been released a number of times on DVD in Japan, but I am not aware of an official North American release. Mm. It is frequently praised for its visuals and sense of fun, but criticized for the story being full of holes, not making much sense, and raising multiple mysteries it never bothers to resolve. Okay, uh, so it's uh, 1959's Lost. <laughs> uh, yeah, if Lost had like dope vampires in it. Maybe it did. <laughs> <laughs> well, how are we watching this then? Uh, so we've got a subtitled version on YouTube oh. uh, that's going to be on our YouTube playlist. Awesome. Folks, if you would like to watch along, you can find that playlist on our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. You are going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Ona Kyuketsuki, uh, also known as Lady Vampire, from 1959, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Ona Kyuketsuki from 1959, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. So, Sarah, the title of this film is Lady Vampire. Yes. It is a maybe a discussion point over whether there is a lady vampire in this movie. Uh, I think what they're going for is, like, the blood curse in the female characters, but in terms of the on-screen vampire, no, it is a guy. I think it could be argued that Miyako is a vampire, but she doesn't do any vampiring. Yeah, so I feel like if you don't see it, then it doesn't exist. <laughs> sure. The story's a bit bonkers. Honestly, this movie was disappointing. Really? Yeah. I was disappointed in the third act. Yeah. But I was really enjoying it up till then. That's fair. Well, why don't I tell everyone what it's about? Okie dokie. So, it is Itsuko's birthday when uh, her mom reappears after having gone missing for 20 years. 
Now, her mom, whose name is Mawako, she doesn't remember anything. She's basically catatonic when she arrives, um, and it's all very mysterious. Further, she hasn't aged a day. Now, Itsuko is engaged to reporter Tamio, um, who basically takes Itsuko to the local art gallery to get her mind off of her catatonic mom, and they go to see the prize-winning piece that is featured at the art gallery, and my god, it features Mawako semi-nude. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, I thought it was kind of funny that it won the jury prize. Yeah, is uh, the actress who plays Miyako uh, the one who goes on to do the pink movies? Yes, correct. Perfect. Lovely. That's what I wanted to hear. Um, So they try to find the artist who won, because... Miyako has been missing for 20 years, and yet you've done this portrait of her. But apparently it was submitted under a fake name. But we as the audience see that it was done by a mysterious, well-dressed man wearing a black fedora and wearing his sunglasses at night. And inside. And inside. And, you know, during the day, now that I think about it as well. Basically all the time. (laughs) But, like, wearing them at night is particularly... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, he looks cool, is what we're saying, really. Now we follow this, we as the audience follow this guy, and we see he has a henchman who is a dwarf named Tiny. Um, And Tiny is ordered to go steal the portrait and have it delivered to Miyako. But also, in his hotel room, this mysterious man um, goes a little crazy because he gets exposed to moonlight. And then we see him transform into a vampire, which for the purposes of this movie means um, baller eye makeup, (laughs) just the best contouring going on. And then these dinky teeth. Yeah, I mean, so he's got like 2000s emo hair. Uh, Yeah, the real good eye makeup. Uh, Vulcan eyebrows, and then the teeth are like um, blunt. They're they're like dollar store like put in your mouth vampire teeth. If they were like oversized, mm-hmm. like if you got like Andre the Giant's novelty vampire teeth, <laughs> so they look like uh, Tic Tacs basically. <laughs> yeah. They um, they don't look good, but in his craze, he kills the hotel maid and then like leaves her body out in the hallway to make it look like a murder. And he just happens to be a witness. Now, back at Miyako's, uh, seeing the painting, her memories come flooding back and we see a flashback where she is out vacationing with her husband at Shimabara because her family line is of the Amakusa line. Um, And so... They were like, well, let's go to like where your ancestors came from. They're vacationing, having a good time. And then suddenly she enters a trance and she is lured away by the dapper man. And he ends up kidnapping her and taking her to this mysterious cave where we see other hench people like a creepy old woman and large bald wrestler. Mm-hmm. And in this flashback, we see the dapper man explain that his name is Takanaka who was a retainer to Princess Katsu, daughter of a Makusa Shiro. Which Im- like improbable daughter. It, yeah. Dude was like fifteen or sixteen when Amakusa was like doing the things. Um and in this flashback when Takanaka explains that he was like her retainer, she's a teen. Yeah. So it's it doesn't make sense. No. Um 
So this fictional daughter. Basically, he is the retainer to her. The shogunate are pounding down the door and Princess Katsu asks Takanaka to kill her before the shogunate arrives. So he does so. But he's absolutely in love with her, like head over heels in love with her. So he loves her more than Deus, the god of the Christians. And to show this love, he drinks her blood and thus becomes immortal. Yeah, like you do. Yeah, I'm not going to kink shame here, (laughs) but the connection that it makes him immortal is interesting. Um, now the full moon slash moonlight is tied to this moment somehow, but it's fuzzy as to how or why, but the movie makes it clear that there's something. Anyways, Miyako, and therefore Itsuko as well, uh, are a descendant of Makusa, and therefore Takanaka is in love with Mawako. And he's like, yeah, I'm in love with you. You can be immortal and stay young forever with me. And if you say no, I'm going to turn you into these other previous brides of mine who are frozen in time thanks to a golden cross. And it really reminds me of, um, you know, Ray from Sailor Moon? Oh, who has okay. like the paper thing. Sure, yeah, yeah, And yeah. like if she puts them on someone, sometimes they like freeze motionless. Sure, yeah, That's yeah. what it reminded me of with yeah. the Golden Cross. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Okay, so while we learn that, um, we see in that like present time, Takanaka goes on a killing spree because Moonlight, and he ends up killing six women, and he manages to also track down Miyako and kidnap her again, with Itsuko and Taimo in pursuit. As part of that pursuit, they head to Shimabara to figure out where he's gone. Um, and they hear of a burglar story, thanks to Taimo's uh, reporter connections. Um, and this robber, the story is he like robbed a bank or whatever and escaped into the mountains and then came across this, they say, castle with a bunch of ghosts and monsters or some shit. And the dude dropped the money and turned himself into the police. And we see this robber being there and he's like, yeah, dude, don't want to go there. But that sounds exactly like where Takanaka might be. So Itsuko and Taimyo go with the cops and the robber on an expedition up the mountain. During this expedition, Itsuko gets kidnapped by Takanaka. Who could have seen that coming? <laughs> Then Taimo finds the entrance to the castle cave. It's not actually a castle. It's just a bunch of caves. It's it's like it's like it's a cave. And then once you get down deep enough, it's it's been like carved into a castle. (laughs) It's like it's like imagine if vampires lived like dwarves do. Now, when we say that the third act kind of falls apart, we're already falling apart by this point. But the rest of the movie is... Uh, Itsuko, Taimo, and the police running around this labyrinth with Takanaka either chasing or being chased with weapons or whatever. It's like a Scooby-Doo episode. Um, Ultimately, uh, the robber, remember him? He escapes from the police, goes and gets the three million yen that he hid, and by pulling that out of some rubble, uh, it ends up opening up a hole to the moonlit sky. And with that moonlight, Takanaka turns fully uh, into this hideous creature, um, full white hair. Um, he he looks like he's been, he loses his youth, basically. Yeah, the vibe I got was like, this is him looking like the 300-year-old person that he is. And he goes mad and jumps into an acid pit. 
Now the minions, like the old lady, end up blowing up the castle. And just as everyone's trying to escape, Itsuko finds her mom, Miyako, who's been frozen as a statue with that golden cross. But they can't save her before the caves collapse. They all get out, and it's fine. The end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, disappointing. Third act really just falls apart. Well, the feeling I get with the third act is like they have this elaborate series of sets for like the cave castle thing. And they really want to get their money's worth. Yeah. And they also don't know what to do with it. Like they have all this running around and it really is just like, you know, this person's chasing that person and we're going through these rooms and now we're going back through those rooms because that person is chasing this person now. And it goes on for a while. It's very like end of invaders from Mars feeling. Yeah. And I get the feeling like that what they wanted to have was like an epic battle where like Takanaka's got like his sword and he's fighting off like a dozen policemen on like a a staircase. Like you can kind of see the bones of what in the script probably seemed like a super dope ending. But it's almost like the movie's reach sort of exceeds its grasp and it runs out of steam because nobody knew how to choreograph a cool fight scene. And I also feel like this is when Nakagawa's direction kind of stumbles. Yeah. Because throughout the rest of the movie, he's doing some really neat stuff with blocking and mirrors and moving camera. Yeah, there's a lot of cool imagery all through the movie up until that ending. And it's like he didn't know what to do with this giant set he'd been handed. Well, I almost feel... So we get repeat angles Mm -hmm. and not different angles. So I feel like he was handed a set that only for each like part of it only had one way you could shoot it. Yeah. And he was like, I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. And then like, you know, there wasn't a good choreographer for the fighting. And because, hey, why do we need a fight choreographer on a horror movie? And then also like they couldn't light it cool and spooky. Like, I don't know. It just it just falls apart. The other thing that falls apart is like the story. Yeah. I mean, it, it on paper, you know, I see what they're trying to do here. My problem is, okay, so obviously they are playing like fast and loose with vampire rules here. Like they're making up their own shit here, yeah. right? Like they are not beholden to any Western rules. So, okay, he's a vampire and he like knows he's a vampire and he's basically like, you know, a vampire all the time. Um, and he talks to people about like, I can, you can drink my blood and then you'll live forever and blah, blah, blah. But his transformation where he becomes a monster, um, sort of like when the vampires on Buffy would like snarl and then suddenly have Star Trek foreheads, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's also a feeling of Wolfman with the moonlight. Well, okay. Yeah. So that's what I was getting at is like, it's turned on by the moon which is like, you know, the universal werewolf thing, you really get the feeling that they're just kind of throwing a bunch of horror movie elements in a pot. Like he's got the reincarnated love interest, like the mummy, which then what's funny about that is like that becomes such a big trope for vampires later. Yeah. But I feel like they're pulling it from the mummy. He's got the moon transformations like the werewolf, you know, so they're kind of pulling things from all over. They've got their own unique vampire rules and that's fine. Um, nobody's going to come and tell you you're doing it wrong. Yeah, it's all fake anyways. You've established that the moon is the thing that turns him 
like feral basically like he's really savage as a vampire but then in the ending the moon saps all his youth and turns him into like a husk person for no real reason and then at that point like he's still running around for a while taunting the police and he goes to like Miyako and he's like ah you know my love this is immortality's last stand and then he goes to like fight the police again and then he just kind of like gives up and is like "Ah, I'll just walk into this acid pit yeah the end and it's like the heroes didn't do anything to stop him he's just kind of like someone handed him a card that said hey man the movie's over and he was like oh okay and like conveniently killed himself the movie just really falls apart at the end yeah um I would even also add that, like, I can see what the contemporary reviews were saying in terms of plot holes. Like, mm. nothing's explained. Uh, there is just a little bit too much going on even before we get to these caves. So I think the script is the big weak point. Yeah, I wonder how much of that is, like, being based on a novel by a novelist who, like, just died. And the screenwriters are like, these nobodies you plugged out of the mailroom to put something together um yeah it really brings it down um i will say that like you know the editing in the last bit really does not help with the pacing at all but that's why i also think that um they didn't have much to choose from because the camera kind of got stuck in one spot i think you're right the the ending honestly has this feeling of like they got to set on the day and no one had figured out the end of the movie yet and it was like let's just shoot some shit uh, for a few days, you know, run around, do some fight scenes, kind of, you know, make stuff up on the fly and we'll edit it together into something. Yeah. We'll like fix it, it in post. Yeah. Like it really feels like making it up as they go by that point. Whereas like before that, you're right. There's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of elements, but it feels like this is on purpose. Yeah. I will also say that um, of the plot holes that I saw critics complain about, some of them have answers. Yeah. You just have to pay attention. Yeah. So like one of the ones that I saw people bring up over and over again is like, how is it that Miyako is immortal? Like, why doesn't she age? It's this big mystery that's not explained. And it's totally explained in the flashback when he kidnaps her for the 20 years. He's like, if you love me, you can drink my blood and then you'll be immortal, which is how vampires work. Like that's Mm -hmm. how a vampire turning someone into a vampire works which is why i think she might be the lady vampire of the title because she drank his blood and now she's immortal it's just that she doesn't go out and do any vampire stuff and he's the one going out and doing all the vampire stuff yeah i think um you could also just kind of hand wave it away with like it's a magic cave who cares sure 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 sure. (laughs) but like i think i think that's what's going on yeah and i think they just again the script is sloppy so they don't really like explicitly connect those dots for you but if you're paying attention it makes sense yeah um another plot hole that was brought up is like why does he enter the painting into the contest when it like sets off this whole thing um well he was trying to find her yes exactly it's a ploy to draw her out because she escaped and he's needing to find her again yeah yeah it's just like that's not explicitly stated you just need to pay attention yeah while the cave sets seemed to hamper what Nakagawa was able to do. I will say they were pretty neat. Yeah. Uh, very German expressionist. The rest of the sets were kind of neat as well. Like it was like a Western style spooky mansion that they lived in, mm-hmm. um, which was like an interesting addition to this. Um, so I think like people making this movie 
besides the script writers, uh, they knew what they were doing. Yeah, I think like, you know, the thing that kept me going through most of the movies, like there's a lot of cool imagery, uh, a lot of great lighting, a lot of like unique vampire imagery. You know, the vampire looks very cool. And there's a lot of like very bonkers kind of violence. This is a vampire who grabs women in a very, um, I will say like the violence towards women is very like, what am I trying to say? It's not the Bella Lugosi, like I'm going to hypnotize you with my eyes into being kind of just docile and then I will slowly overcome you. It's very like... I think you hit the nail on the head with Feral. Yeah, it's very savage. It has undertones of like sexual assault to me because he's like grabbing these women and like tossing them onto the bed and like attacking them and stuff. And um, these women are screaming and running around. The thing that is, I think, noteworthy is he does like one bite per victim. He does like one bite and it's as if like he just all the blood he needs up in that <laughs> one bite. And then these he just, women like, are just Capri sons to him. Right. And then he just tosses them aside and he's on to the next one like right away. Yeah. It's um, a little, little ridiculous, but it's yes. fun. Ultimately, this movie doesn't have the xenophobia that we speculated about, um, given the context of Amakuso Shiro and what he kind of represents and what Dracula kind of represented by Bram Stoker. They make it clear that he's going against the Christian God, like his his old hag minion is like, you shouldn't keep doing this. Otherwise, like the Christian God's going to smite you down uh, kind of stuff. She's no, she says the Christian God will bring this castle down. Yes. And then she's the one who blows it up, this which is, is hilarious. Yeah. But, you know, that Christian, I'm glad we looked into that background yeah. for this movie, though, because it's like, oh, OK, I understand this a lot better with that historical background about that Christian rebellion, because the movie kind of just assumes, you know, what's up. Like yeah. at one point um, when they're explaining that Miyako's family is descended from the Amakusa, like somebody's like, yeah, she's descended from the Amakusa. And uh, Taimyo is like, oh, yeah, like the, the guys who re- did the Christian rebellion against the Shogun in like the 17th century. Yep, yep, yep. Totally know what that is. Yeah. You know, like it's taught in like primary school or something. <laughs> uh, so I'm really glad we, we did that research beforehand. Context. It's what we do. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know enough about Japanese censorship laws over time to speak definitively about this but judging from other japanese movies i've seen from around this period i feel like this movie has like a boundary pushing level of nudity and gore yeah i would agree yeah like there's a lot of blood when he's killing these women when he is attacking them he's like slashing their clothes open um and then yeah there's just the fact that like a major prop in the movie is mieko's um you know, glamour portrait, uh, where she, like boudoir portrait, basically, that was done of her. And then we see her sitting for the portrait as well. In the where, flashback, yeah. Yeah, so she's literally being naked. It's not just like, oh, well, it's just a painting. Right. We've kind of got, harkening back to Black Cat Mansion, that kind of like flashback within the flashback structure here uh, going on. And, you know, harkening back to what I was saying about like the reincarnated lover thing there's a lot of stuff in this movie that feels like oh yeah this is kind of going to become more standard vampire stuff in the future like how the vampires like got a bit of a semi-sympathetic 
portrayal here. It's a little bit confused because even when he's in control of himself, he's like, Mwahaha, you will join me and become a vampire. But then he's like really afraid of the moonlight because he doesn't want to go on these like savage rampages. So I don't know. They're just they're throwing a lot of stuff in the in the pot here. Yeah. Well, where would you like to rank this pot? Oh, Sarah, I had a really hard time with ranking on this. Same. Yeah, my range ended up being like 24 movies wide. Yeah, mine is 43 movies wide. Okay. Uh, Well, why don't you go first? Okay. So my first like points of comparison was I looked for like El Vampiro, uh, which is at 50, 55. And I looked for I Vampiri, which is at 80. Ultimately, I decided that this needed to go lower than those. Um, El Vampiro just like is way more sure of what it's doing. Yeah. And then looking where I Vampiri is, we have stuff like, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, Son of Dracula, Freaks, like sitting beneath that. And I felt this needed to go below those. Yeah. And I Vampiri, even as much as like it wasn't necessarily Dracula, it was more like Elizabeth Bathory. Like, mm-hmm. as you said, it was a lot more sure of what it was doing. Yeah. Even though I, I did actually enjoy this quite a bit until the kind of, like, limp finale. Yeah. So the next movie that I thought of, for whatever reason, was La Mamia Azteca. Interesting. Which is down at 181. Okay. And looking around here, I was like, okay, no, this is better than than these movies. Um, you know, let's start looking up from here. And I hit 174, Pico Valladama, uh, the silent version of Queen of Spades. And I was like, yeah, you know, maybe that's better than this because there's like some of that silent film artistry going on. So I made Pico Valladama my floor because above that we have stuff like um, Spanish Dracula, which actually felt really similar for some reason to me, Um, I guess from the more manic portrayal of the vampire. Um, and I kept looking up, trying to find like, okay, but what's definitely better than this movie? I almost stopped at 157 with The Mummy. I was like, The Mummy's better than this. But then like above The Mummy is The Devil Doll and The Return of Dr. X. And I was like, okay, no, we could we could keep going higher. And where I ended up as a ceiling was 131, uh, which is where we have My World Dies Screaming, aka Terror in the Haunted House, which is a movie with a lot of potential that kind of falls down sometimes, which is kind of similar to this, in my opinion. And right above that, we have like Murders in the Room Morgue and Man from Planet X and Dr. X, movies that I think maintain their mood and atmosphere a lot better than this film. So that's kind of the range I ended up with, 131 to 174. It's interesting that you bring up Dr. X and bringing it up as an example of like controlling the mood and everything, because one critique we often have of that movie is that we have a bumbling reporter as our comedic relief. Mm -hmm. In this movie, we also have a reporter who is kind of a bumbling guy, but but it's not not comedic. Exactly. Yeah. He's not the comic relief. The the thing here is that we don't lose atmosphere because of genre confusion. We lose atmosphere because we just fucking run out of steam to finish the movie yeah because i wanted to say that like i think until we run out of that steam this movie does a really good job of handling mood and atmosphere yes absolutely so where are you looking hun well i started by looking at uh nakagawa's previous entries on the list now one of those entries is not ranked 
Um, uh, and just for the record, uh, I think Ana Kyoketsuki is horror. Yes. Um, for that, you know, for the record. But the lowest ranked Nakagawa movie on the list is Ghost of Kasane Swamp at 71. And I felt that Kasane Swamp is better. Yeah. Um, so I was like, okay, well, that's like a good, like, not maybe not necessarily ceiling, but at least like, you know, a topper. And then I made my way down to Evampuri at 80. And I was like, well, a little comparable in the sense of like, we're going to give you vampires. Just kidding. We're going to give you something else. Mm. Neither movie did on purpose a bait and switch. Right. Even Puri knew what it was doing when it was going in, whereas Onakio Ketsuki fumbled. Well, I think the, the bait and switch here is that the lady ain't a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, I'll keep Evan Puri as like a ceiling then. Okay. And then I looked down and my eyes fell to 95, Jujin Yuki Otoko, mm. which is a fairly tepid horror movie um, because the horror is like, oh no, blurred bloodlines, I guess. And also like, are we being bad to these animal people? Right. And I don't know. I just felt like, uh, no pun intended, but the lady vampire had a bit more teeth. Um, so my range is um, 80 to 95. So the exact midpoint between your floor and my ceiling is number 113. Valley of the Zombies. Which is actually a vampire movie. That's funny. That's very funny. Because <laughs> it's that guy running across rooftops stealing blood plasma or whatever from the clinics and things. Is it really? Yeah, I don't remember capes. this movie at all. Yeah, it was like called Valley of the Zombies, and then there's no valley and there's no zombies. And oh, it's except like, in a flashback. Not even a flashback. He just talks about it. He's just like, I went to a valley that the locals called the Valley of the Zombies, and now I'm a vampire. And he was like killing people, and he was kind of a science vampire, like he was stealing blood from clinics. And he had a cape, and he ran across mm. rooftops like he was a Gotham City villain. What's tough is if the third act of the lady vampire didn't you know fumble fumble crash and burn take your pick i would feel like it would probably go above that movie what's weird here in this part of the list and i don't know how this happens sometimes but it sure does is that above valley of the zombies we have stuff like lulu de malvenure and the man who turned to stone and el monstro resuscitado and la bruja movies that are kind of fucking messes and then below Valley of the Zombies, we have stuff like Orlok's Honda and uh, White Zombie. The and Crawling Gross. Eye. Yeah, stuff that, like, is better. I don't know how this happened. <laughs> well, I will say that um, El Monstro Sassitato is really good in being a universal callback. Right. It like, it's like we're doing Universal and turning it on its head a little bit, but also having a shit ton of fun. And uh, that level of fun and like fun in the genre was missing here a bit. Hmm. I thought there was that level of fun, but your mileage may vary based on how much patience you have for running through a cave set versus a like paper mache head yeah. makeup. Um, can you remind me what? Ledron de Cadaveras is about. Is that the one with the wrestler who's a Frankenstein? 
Yeah, a Wikipedia synopsis says a wrestler and a detective try to stop a mad scientist who is replacing athletes' brains with animal brains to make yes. them stronger and live longer. Okay, I remember that now. Okay. I think I think the Lady Vampire is better than that. Okay, I'm gonna propose a spot for you. Yeah. Above Ledron de Cadaveras and below The Undead, which is the Roger Corman movie about the hooker who goes back in time <laughs> to medieval times to make a deal with Satan. Yeah. Let's do that. I like that a lot. Okay. Because <laughs> that movie is dope. <laughs> so entering the list at the new number 108 is Ona Kyuketsuki from 1959, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many other episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach us over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving a rating or a review. You can spread word of the show through social media or in person to help us grow our audience. And if you have the means, we would like to invite you to help support the show financially over at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month, just like David Healy. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Your patronage helps uh, pay for our hosting costs and also helps with like us taking the time to produce these episodes each and every week. Uh, additionally, our patrons help to support the fact that we do a monthly horror adjacent bonus episode, uh, which the newest one is on Beetlejuice, uh, the Tim Burton film. And you can vote for what that horror adjacent bonus episode will be if you become a patron. That's available to patrons of all levels. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to exclusive bonus content, with $5 patrons getting bonus audio and $10 patrons getting bonus writing, including, I think, an old university essay uh, by me about Faust and Mad Men? Yes. A decade-old paper from Ben. <laughs> yes. Uh, so if you want to enjoy that kind of content, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Uh, so what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week, it's the third and final entry in the Officer Kelso trilogy. Oh, my God. Ed Wood? It's an Ed Wood film. And in fact, it's an Ed Wood film that was never officially released until 1984 because he ran out of money to pay the film lab to give him the prints once they were made, so they just sat in the lab for 30 years. Ooh. It's Night of the Ghouls. <laughs> Sorry, I'm picturing ghouls having, like, a sleepover. <laughs> well, we will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.